Welcome back to Immigrantly. I am your host Sadia Khan and I am particularly excited for today's episode because this is the second part of our two-part series. Now, if you are tuning in today, please be sure to listen to the first part of this series titled Human Rights Be Damned, in which I had a thrilling and insightful conversation with our guest Rana Ayub, the widely known Washington Post journalist and columnist. We talked about the human rights violations occurring in India along with the broader conversation surrounding foreign response or as we discussed in the episode the lack of response. Today we will be talking with Brent Huffman an American director and writer. His work has been featured on Netflix, Discovery Channel, The National Geographic Channel, Vice, NBC, CNN, PBS, Time, The New York Times, Al Jazeera America and Al Jazeera English and premiered at the International Documentary Film Festival Amsterdam, IDFA and many other US and international film festivals. He's also a professor at the Medell School of Journalism at Northwestern University where he teaches documentary production and theory. Brent is also a producer of Finding Yang Yang 2020 an MTV documentary film that premiered at South by Southwest in 2020 and won the Breakthrough Voice Jury Award and was nominated for an Emmy in 2021 in the Best Investigative Documentary category. Isn't that awesome? His new documentary Strands of Resistance examining China's economic relationship with Pakistan premiered on Vice and Vice News tonight. An episode of the documentary called Uyghurs who fled China now face repression in Pakistan won a Rory Peck award in the best news feature category at the British Film Institute in London in 2021. given Brent's first-hand experience in China filming this documentary today's episode will center on what's happening in China to Uyghurs and Pakistan's response to it now for those listeners who don't know this there are around 12 million Uyghurs in China largely in Xinjiang a province of China ethnically Turkic they speak Uyghur and most practice Sufi Islam Tensions between China's ethnic Han majority and Uyghurs have led to sporadic hostilities. In 2009, tensions erupted between ethnic Uyghurs and the majority Han Chinese, leaving more than 200 people dead and thousands more injured. Since 2000, Uyghurs have protested unfair treatment by the majority and in July 2009 a fight erupted in a factory in the southern province of Guangdong when Uyghurs accused Han Chinese co-workers of racial violence. A consequent demonstration organized by more than 1000 Uyghur protesters escalated into a riot in Xinjiang's capital of Urumqi, leaving more than 150 casualties. It was the country's deadliest public violence since the 1989 crackdown on demonstrators in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. After hours of shooting and facing a line of troops the crowd is still here they're shouting stop the killing and down with the government 
The noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of Peking. It was unremitting. From Tiananmen Square, the sound of gunfire sounded like a battle, but it was one-sided. Now, since 2016, the Chinese government has targeted Uyghur people with a vast surveillance system, heavy policing, mass detentions, and forced labor systems. Researchers estimate that more than one million, yeah, one million Uyghurs have been detained in a series of camps throughout the region. The 53-page report titled Break Their Lineage, Break Their Roots documented a range of abuses that also include enforced disappearances, mass surveillance, separation of families forced to return to China, forced labor, sexual violence, and violations of reproductive rights. Now, China justifies such measures as a response to the terrorist threat posed by extremist separatist groups. We will break all of it down with Brent. So let's get started. I'm really excited to have you on Immigrantly, and thank you for agreeing to come on our show. Sure, thank you for having me. So Brent, just to take a step back, this conversation will focus mostly on what's happening to Uyghur population in China and Pakistan's response or lack of response to the situation. But before we get into specifics, for those listeners who really don't know much about the situation or about Uyghur population, can you give us a brief history of Uyghur population in China and what's happening on the ground right now? It's a complicated story, and maybe I should start with what's happening right now with a little background on who the Uyghur are. So the Uyghur are a Turkic Muslim, what would be called an ethnic minority group within China. And they actually briefly had an independent country. I think for about a year, they were an independent country. So they had a taste of independence. They're in the west of the country, centered in the capital of Urumqi. They feel independent. They want this independence from China. They want to be an independent country, much like Tibet. So if your listeners know anything about Tibet and the sort of fight for Tibetan independence, this is the same kind of thing that they want. And in the last few years, China has been cracking down on the Uyghur people, cracking down on peaceful Uyghurs, destroying mosques, destroying cemeteries, destroying Uyghur schools, putting over a million Uyghurs into re-education camps. Many people call them concentration camps. The U.S. Secretary of State, Secretary Blinken, has formally called what's happening genocide of the Uyghur people. We see a genocide having taken place against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. More than a million people have been put into, choose your term, concentration camps, re-education camps, internment camps. We've seen forced sterilization in an effort to hold down birth rates among the Uyghurs and various repressive and violent actions directed against them because they're Uyghurs. It's been our tendency to stand up and say something about it and to try to do something about it. Taking action, including sanctions, China signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It made solemn commitments to human rights. It's violating those commitments. So in a nutshell, that's what's been happening, and it's been kind of ramping up in the last few years. 
let's unpack what you've already mentioned. You said something along the lines that the crackdown happened or started happening a few years back. As I was prepping for this interview, I was doing some research and to me it seems like the crackdown started way earlier. It started post 9-11 when US launched its war on terror mm-hmm. and that gave China a pretext to call different Uyghur groups terrorist organizations and initiate crackdown. So it started way before that. What are your thoughts on that? And how did the war on terror play a role in how China is treating Uyghur population now? That's a great point. And I think you're right. There was some inspiration from China about some things that were happening in the United States. But there were sort of two big incidents, one in 2005 and another in 2009 within China. 2009, there was a riot. Hundreds of people lost their lives and were injured out of Uramuchi, and China blamed this riot on a Uyghur separatist group called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. And I think there's some controversy around ETIM, how big they are, in what way do they really exist. but. China basically used the ETM as the catalyst, as the bad guy for this genocide to eventually take place. But the concentration camps, the big push to sort of eradicate Uyghur culture is what's really been happening in the last few years. But you're exactly right, there's been a long buildup. And in terms of ETIM, my understanding of the group is that Yes, there are portions of it that are militant, but it's a very small group. It's weak and it's isolated. It doesn't have links to Al-Qaeda or any other terrorist organizations, which China claims it does, right? Right, it does. And exactly as you were saying, they use ETIM as their main talking point and then lump all Uyghurs together as terrorists. So in the film that I made about Uyghurs in Pakistan, a peaceful school teacher who's teaching the Uyghur language is called a terrorist by China. So they kind of lump everyone together. And you're exactly right. I think ETIM really doesn't exist anymore right. as far as I know. And when it did, it was a very small fringe group. But China certainly exaggerated their significance, exaggerated their outreach and their connection to other countries, and then really used them as a catalyst to do this massive genocide. Brent, I also want to expand the conversation around genocide. Now, a lot of countries, U.S. included, have called it a genocide. And as a rights activist, I always go back to Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, Article 2, which defines genocide, and I quote, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group As such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Based on the work that you've done, Does this term accurately describe what's happening to Uyghurs in China? It does, yes. In my mind, I was kind of checking all the boxes that you mentioned. I think tragically it checks all those boxes, yes. 
Let's talk about different countries' response to abuses happening in China. A lot of countries have been increasingly critical. Some governments, such as Canada, the United Kingdom, and the U.S., have imposed targeted and other sanctions on Chinese governments, officials, agencies, even companies that are implicated in rights violations, right? Mm -hmm. EU foreign ministers have agreed to impose sanctions against China for the first time since 1989. That's to punish the Chinese government for its actions against the Uyghur Muslims. The stakes are high. After all, China rose to become the EU's most important trading partner February's just winter games year. in China are already under fire from activists concerned about the Chinese Communist Party's suppression of the Muslim Uyghur people in Xinjiang. But at the same time, then there are governments, including several members of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, surprisingly, that still praise the Chinese government and even their policies in the region. Why are certain countries more quick to react to what's happening in China while other countries or organizations are not, including Pakistan? That's a great question. And I think I should start by saying the sanctions imposed by the United States are a great first step, but aren't entirely effective, honestly, right? I think hmm. sanctions are kind of the least we could do in a way. So, I mean, I think it's Calling it genocide, trying to do these sanctions, trying to call out companies, I think those are good steps. But I think all Uyghur human rights groups would say it's not enough. The United States needs to get more involved. But then, as you're saying, there's dozens of other countries that you've talked about. I could talk about Pakistan specifically that are, to be totally honest, involved in these massive economic projects with China. Hmm. And honestly, I think they feel sort of beholden to China, to this money, and feel like their hands are tied. And it's tragic and shocking. Pakistan is a Muslim country. It was the first country founded as a Muslim country. And I could talk about this more specifically. Imran Khan has said it's a Chinese internal issue. We trust China. We trust the Chinese version of facts of what's happening there. And they want the relationship to continue. Now, I think one thing that's interesting is that relationship is souring in Pakistan. So what once was this kind of love affair between China and China can do no wrong is changing. But for a long time, the One Belt, One Road project, which is kind of like this incredible reimagining of the ancient Silk Road, has been pumping money into hundreds of countries. Nearly 150 countries have relationships with One Belt, One Road. A lot of these are especially in Pakistan, are relationships where Pakistan is accruing debt from China, debt that it can probably, certainly now, never pay off. So it's almost like China is the boss and whatever the boss says goes. And in this case, it's the genocide of a Muslim group of people. And these countries are directly involved. They're deporting Uyghurs out of their country into China, where they face a terrible fate. Brent, I want to linger on a bit as far as conversation around Pakistan's response to what's happening in China is concerned. Now, as a Pakistani-American, I feel like I have an obligation to investigate this further. And to be honest, I'm approaching this from a place of curiosity. But I think it would be unfair for us to have this conversation without talking about, as you said, Pakistan's economic and military dependence on China. 
right? Mm -hmm. I was watching the episode of your documentary and I noticed that there's this constant reinforcement of this dependence. At one point, the founder of the China-Pakistan Institute, Mushahid Hussain, describes their relationship as being, and I quote, higher than the mountains and deeper than the oceans. Relations with China is above party lines as enjoying across the board popular support among the political parties, provinces, and all the shades of opinion and in our system also. I've listened to so many interviews with Imran Khan, the ex-Prime Minister of Pakistan, who most of the time avoids questions related to the treatment of Uyghurs in China. And instead, he kept on reaffirming how much China has helped Pakistan, mm. which is a fact. Does Pakistan's inherent dependence on China as an economic and military ally hinder its ability to critique the Chinese government and question what's happening to Uyghurs? In other words, is it unfair to expect Pakistan, which is a developing nation, it depends heavily on China, mm -hmm. it has realigned itself militarily from the US because US has realigned itself from from Pakistan to India, Pakistan's rival. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's even possible for Pakistan to raise concerns given the economic and the military situation on the ground? That's a great question. And it's also a situation that I think is changing. Hmm. But you're exactly right. Yes, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is actually the flagship project of this One Belt, One Road that I mentioned, this massive new Silk Road. Pakistan was the flagship part of this project. China was loaning Pakistan something close to $70 billion to build this infrastructure project, which was roads and power plants and bridges and the port in Gwadar, these massive projects. And I think you're right that Pakistan didn't have have a lot of other options. This was an exciting project. One of the problems is China promises big things. So the promises were huge. I think what we're seeing now is that the promises aren't being fulfilled and progress is really slow. And some of that love affair, the sweeter than honey, higher than the Himalayas, <laughs> you know, we're Iron Brothers. In 2017, 2018, I heard that from a lot of people. And I think now you don't hear that so much anymore because I think the Iron Brotherhood has been tested and the situation is changing. Friend, can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm curious to know what do you mean by that? So I think it stems from, again, these really big promises. In some ways, what's happening in Pakistan mirrors what happened in Sri Lanka in some ways. Sri Lanka is facing the worst economic collapse of its modern history. The country's most chaotic day in months of political turmoil. Tens of thousands of people storming the presidential palace and... Big promises were made. Honestly, I think China is attracted to countries that are in kind of a crisis. You know, China can sort of swoop in. They can dictate the terms all in their favor. And I would argue the Chinese government, Chinese business, they're not stupid, right? They're self-interested. They want these things to benefit them. And I think they made deals in Sri Lanka and Pakistan that benefited them. And I think they saw things like ports in both countries that they wanted access to for business, for military reasons. In some ways, I think Pakistan was wooed by this wolf in sheep's clothing sort of, and was promised all of these grand things. I think what's happening in Gwadar is a good example of that. Progress is really slow. The projects aren't happening. At one point, the Chinese company built a fence around Gwadar, and people were really confused whether this was a port that belonged to the Pakistani people or it was something that belonged to China. And then sort of watching the way things played out in Sri Lanka and the way China took control of the port, I think there's a new wariness to China in Pakistan. 
though the financial situation in Pakistan is very bad, so they certainly wouldn't break the relationship with China. Right. And when I think of China, and this may be my inherent bias growing up in Pakistan, but I feel like Pakistan and China's interests are strategically aligned. They are situated in the same region. So stability mm-hmm. for China, because China is emerging as the next, some people may call it superpower, economic power. Yeah. It's in China's interest to have the kind of stability within that region, be it Pakistan or Afghanistan. And whether fortunately or unfortunately, Pakistan and U.S. strategic alliance has been recalibrated in a way. And because of that, we see all the shifts in geopolitics and economic military dynamic that's happening. But I want to bring your attention to something else now that we've talked about the U.S. and U.S.'s role in all of this. During my conversation with Rana Yoop, I made sure that listeners knew that although a minority, there are 200 million Muslims in India. And still, they are facing human rights abuses in the face of the government. In China, there are 12 million Uyghurs primarily living in the province of Xinjiang. The United States has remained mute regarding the treatment of Muslims in India. But at the same time, it's been very vocal about the treatment of Uyghurs in China. And that's not to say that one should be prioritized over the other. But the rhetoric surrounding both human rights violations is so different. America values human rights. We don't always live up to our expectations, but it's a value system. We are founded on that principle. And as long as you and your country continues to so blatantly violate human rights, we are going to continue in an unrelenting way to call to the attention of the world and make it clear what's happening. No American president ever backed down from speaking out of what's happening to the Uyghurs, what's happening in Hong Kong. That's who we are. I wonder what are your thoughts on that? And does this come back to this idea of nations of power being selective with what they consider human rights allegations and how they respond to them? Yes, so you're 100% correct. And I'm not going to praise the United States government much during this conversation. I actually think what happened was during the Trump presidential campaign that the U.S. and China relationship started to unravel. So U.S. and China used to be really close and had close economic ties. And during the Trump years and continuing now, I think the relationship is still an economic one. But I think there's a lot of negative feelings between the two countries. We talked about some of these new sanctions, travel between the two countries. I'm a professor at a university. Having Chinese students at the university, those things are changing. I'm seeing less and less students from China. So a lot of the anti-China and pro-Uyghur sentiments came during this period where the China-U.S. relationship was unraveling. Before that, it was very positive around China. So I think you're exactly right. There are these political motivations for the U.S. to be rallying around the Uyghur cause now, sadly. So I would argue it isn't coming from a core, you know, we fight for human rights abuses around the world, no matter what. That just isn't the case. It comes out of this fraught political relationship. I think politicians are really quick to villainize China now in talking points. I think those things have become politically popular and politically popular with American citizens. The world that rightly recoils in horror at the photographs from Ukraine should not look the other way past Z's concentration camps for the Uyghur people. 
The modern totalitarianism of the People's Republic of China is no less abhorrent because it's sanitized and it's organized. I believe that the president's instincts to go after China are the right thing to do. I think China has taken terrible advantage of America over the last decade or two, and they don't play fair. So I think you're exactly right. Why does one thing get ignored? and the other thing get focused on. And the Uyghur issue was ignored for a long time by the US. Right. So why now? I think that's the reason is it's politically popular, sadly. I mean, I hate that that's what's happening, but it is. And on the flip side, I also want to call out a lot of my Pakistani friends that I've had conversations with regarding this topic. Now, some agree that this is a human rights violation that requires more attention, but others don't see it this way. And it is so frustrating, Brent, because many will claim things like, oh, the crisis in China is being propelled on large scale by Western news propaganda and that United States and other foreign entities against China play a role in even radicalizing separatist groups like ETIM to cause upheaval. Given the research that you've done and the time that you've invested how would you respond to people who think this is some kind of propaganda-driven narrative? Obviously, in the United States, this, this term fake news has been thrown around politically, and millions of people think things said on the political left are fake news, things said on the political right are fake news, and I'm not sure there's a way to convince people otherwise. Just because these values seem so ingrained in people where they stand politically is how they see the world. But I mean, in terms of the Uyghur genocide, there's just monumental evidence, documents and images and video. So I think denying what's happening to the Uyghurs is like denying the Holocaust, which there is a tremendous amount of evidence, obviously. But there are people in the United States that deny the Holocaust, too, despite all the evidence. Evidence doesn't seem to convince some people, sadly. But it's evidence is the kind of thing that convinces you there's a massive amount of evidence proving the genocide happening to the Uyghurs in China. Can you share a few specific resources or sites where people can go and look at all the evidence that exists? I mean, I think there's lots of places. I think all the major news organizations have done research and have published on this. I think the Uyghur Human Rights Organization is a great resource to see links to all these different sites in one location. But there's a lot of groups based in the U.S., based internationally, focused on getting the Uyghur story out there. I want to circle back to Pakistan's response or lack thereof one more time. And while we've discussed how Pakistan is economically dependent, it still doesn't absolve it from raising its concern, right? And in a few interviews, Imran Khan mentioned that they've had talks behind closed doors with China. Mm -hmm. Maybe China is less receptive to public shaming. Maybe they are more receptive to having conversations privately. But as someone who's done extensive research, who's been to Pakistan a number of times, who's created a documentary around this issue, how do you think Pakistan can approach this issue without really offending China, but also helping amplify voices that need to be heard. As you stated, China and Pakistan are our neighbors, right? So it's different than the United States relationship with China. And if I put myself in Pakistan's shoes and had these economic relationships and knew China's military capabilities, I think 
China in some ways can be a terrifying neighbor, <laughs> right? So yeah. I think it is soft power kind of things. And one example that popped into my head, there were a couple hundred Uyghur wives of Pakistani businessmen that were deported to China back in, I think, 2018. Mm. And the Pakistani business people had these protests in Islamabad saying, where our wives return them, they're innocent. China's one-child policy has fueled the trafficking of young brides from Pakistan. As many as 1,000 women and girls have been sold to Chinese men who often abuse and rape them. It took some time, but the Pakistani government was eventually receptive and pushed that these women come back to the country and exit these concentration camps. And that's one example of the Pakistani government gently getting involved in a specific issue. So I think it is possible, but it would be surprising if Emran Khan would come out and say, this is genocide that's happening in China and we need to stop this from happening and we need to fight China. I mean, those would be very shocking and probably self-destructive things for a Pakistani leader to do and to say. So I think that's what we're seeing happening is I think Pakistan is in a situation where its hands are tied. Now, of course, Emran Khan has been ousted. I think people were unhappy with the relationship with China. I do think that was part of it. Hmm. But the situation that Pakistan is in right now is they need all the help that they can get. So even though the Pakistan-China relationship is souring a little bit, Pakistan doesn't have many options yeah. of what to do next. And it's interesting you mention Imran Khan being ousted. When I think of that, the first thing that comes to my mind is our military institution mm -hmm. and how that plays a role in who is in power and who isn't. So <laughs> I wouldn't even blame our interaction, our relationship with China. Yeah. I think there are a lot of internal forces that could have led to that. Sure. In the end, Brent, Given how selective countries and people are in calling out human rights violations based on their vantage point, how do we ensure that we look at human rights violations or realization of human rights as a universal truth rather than something that suits us? Like I said, I'm a professor. I'm a documentary filmmaker. Human rights and social justice are my core values. So I think certainly the United States is guilty of horrific human rights abuses and was arguably founded on some of the most horrific human rights and social justice abuses and continue to not protect Muslim human rights, for example. So sadly, there's no good guy in the story. And certainly if you're an entity that is fueled by capitalism, right? Right. I'm not sure that human rights is a central focus. I think that's what's at war here. If you're trying to make money or you're trying to fund wars and you're trying to do terrible things overseas, you can't put on this human rights face. So I think no one would argue that, oh, the United States has got the upper hand in human rights and is showing the world how to care about people. I mean, that's just crazy. So I think that the answer has to be that if we're going to focus on capitalism and these are the ways that we want our countries to exist, I think individuals have to push the government in the United States through democratic elections to care about these issues and to care about all issues, not just be selective. Hmm. And unfortunately, like I said, with the Uyghur issue, honestly, I think the only reason the United States cares, and I think it's great that it does care, but it's motivated by economic and political reasons to care. And that just tarnishes things. So I normally ask my guests to define America in a word or a sentence at the end of each interview. <laughs> and you've already touched on this, but if you were to define America, in the context of how it prides itself on democratic 
and moral values versus how it enacts them. It seems like America has been just in this crisis for the last few years. I think the United States is a country of enormous potential, but it doesn't realize its potential, right? And I think it's a country, like I said, sort of mired in crimes against humanity, honestly, right? Mm. With slavery and Native Americans and treatment of Black Americans and Muslim Americans and Asian Americans. I mean, it's kind of a nightmare zone for a lot of people who aren't the white male American. The United States has this potential, I think, for greatness. And I think you see glimmers of hope where democracy seems to work and seems to be a positive force. But right now we have a Supreme Court that is sending us back in time into the dark ages, right? And right. just sort of shutting down all of the potential, I think. So I don't have an optimistic answer. I think the potential for greatness is still there, I guess. But we're in this terrible place right now. And I will just extend this question a little I'll make this one exception on this particular interview. If you were to advise or say something to Pakistani folks who may be listening to this episode and who've denied the realities on the ground in China, what would you say to them? So I've taught in Pakistan and I had wonderful experiences. My Pakistani students were incredible. So this sort of Uyghur issue, at least in my experience, I found Pakistanis to be very concerned about what was happening to Uyghurs inside Pakistan. I found Pakistanis in Pakistan wanting to help. They were alarmed at this. So I see this as a governmental issue and decisions made in the government. At least in my experience, it hasn't been the Pakistani people. That's interesting you say that. Maybe it's Pakistani Americans. <laughs> I think that Pakistani Americans have sufficient reason to distrust Western media and the U.S. government. So I certainly wouldn't say they're wrong for this distrust or they're wrong for wanting more information. But I think I would argue that the evidence is out there if they would like to see it. Just pure evidence, just pure documents proving what's happening. And maybe that's the direction. They don't have to listen to the U.S. government. They can see the facts for themselves. But I found Pakistani people to be wonderful and open-minded and highly educated. And I think this critique of the Pakistani government is entirely separate, just like I think the critique of the U.S. government is separate from the American people. And it's true for so many other governments, Indian government versus Indian people, Chinese government versus Chinese people. Totally. This was so good, Brent. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that I was able to do this two-part episode series with Rana and you. And I am so inspired by both your work. Keep doing what you guys are doing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Brent. Take care. Wow. These two episodes are my favorite by far. I am so glad I was able to sit down with Rana Ayub and Brent Huffman to talk about rights. Now, here's what I think. Selective empathy is worse than no empathy at all. If you mistrust an organization, a government, a news source, find one that you trust. But it is important that you know the truth, the whole truth. So, if you are interested in doing some research, look up resources and we'll link some up in our show notes and on our social media as well. This episode was produced by me, written by Sana Khan. Our amazing editor is Manny Simone. Until next time, take care. Thank you.